Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. People can change anything they want to. And that means everything in the world. Show me any country and there'll be people in it. It's time to take the humanity back into the center of the ring and follow that for a time. You know, think on that. Without people, you're nothing. Without people, you're nothing. Stoke the fire. All right, welcome to episode 29 of Stoke the Fire. As always, we're your hosts, Matt Stocks and Jesse Leach. Uh, It feels like it's been a while since we've connected in this way it's only been a couple of weeks but i think because we do it so regularly when it's not really regularly it feels like a lifetime to me anyway sure dude it has been a, a lot has happened in the past couple of weeks for sure it's really nice to see you man it's good to see you yeah it's been a weird time man not gonna lie i won't go too much into it because we've got so much to cover in this episode but yeah it's been a difficult week and i've definitely gone to some strange places and so i'm i'm very much looking forward to this chat as i always do i always find when we're not in this thing like fully i don't know whether it's because i've become dependent on it or it just weirdly coincides with when my life kind of goes a little bit shaky but i've certainly found that when we're not in the constant like flow of this thing I feel myself kind of spiraling, not out of control, but certainly like verging towards um, sad spots. So it goes yeah. to show how important, I guess, this show is to me. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely therapeutic. I mean, whether it's us talking about stuff or just hearing other people's stories, you know, and I'm reminded of that on a regular basis from what people say online. Like it is, it's something really positive and something that allows us to sort of be involved with this uh, you know, purging of emotions and that catharsis. It's its important for sure. I agree with you, man. It's been a beautiful constant in my life since we started. 29, episode 29, dude. It's awesome. A big shout out to Eddie Therese, who was on last week, a, a listener of the show, a fellow podcaster, an insane life story. Um, and the response to that one's been really cool. And I rewatched it back the other day. And uh, yeah, just again, was blown away by what that dude had been through. And how he's turned it around, as so many of those stories that we've heard kind of go, right? They, they go to some very trying and often dark places, but the, 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 the message is always one of hope and optimism, and it's nice to share those stories and I guess hopefully let people out there feel less alone because we all go through trials and tribulations. Um, it's how we deal with them, which defines us best, right? Um, a quick, quick, quick bit of housekeeping before we get today's amazing guest on and i know this one's going to be a very intimate and and moving and special episode um if you're not already please follow us on facebook twitter and or instagram at stoke the fire pod uh, if you would like to reach out if you want to suggest guests if you want to share your story potentially come on the show as a listener as a guest or if you want to ask us questions 
for our upcoming campfire Q&A session, uh, then the address is stokethefirepod at gmail.com. I'm going to be catching up with all our emails this week. It's been a while since I've actually checked in and done that. So please get in touch. Uh, I will get back to everybody eventually. And the the big thing you can do to really help us out, if you want to get behind this show and support us and and help us to continue doing what we uh, do, then please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube is where you'll find us. And if you really want to do us a solid, um, you can become a subscriber of the Gas Digital Network, which is the home of the show. And the way to do that is to go to gasdigitalnetwork.com. And then if you use the promo code STF for Stoke the Fire, that will give you a discount. Uh, it will also give you a two-week free trial so you can check out the service. It's all the shows on the network. It's every episode from all the shows. You may have noticed that it's only the most recent 15 episodes that are available publicly. Uh, if you do want to go back and hear the likes of Keith Buckley, Randy Bly, uh, all the other earlier guests that we had, then the only place to get them is Gas Digital. And the only place to do that is by becoming a subscriber of the show. So... Uh, with all of that said, um, I'm going to hand over to my dear friend Jesse to tell us, if anybody can tell us about today's guest, it's him. He lives with her. Um, and then we'll invite her on. And I just can't wait to see where this conversation goes. I know it's going to be a great episode, this one. Indeed, indeed. Um, there's much I could say. But with heavier guests like this, um, I feel like less is more. She's got a lot to say herself. Uh, the love of my life, my best friend, and... Uh, an amazing artist and uh, incredibly strong human, uh, Corinne, a.k.a. Purple, for her friends that know her, her well. So come on in, Corinne. Hit those two little buttons on the bottom of your screen. There she is. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure, and you're just in the other room. So <laughs> <laughs> I did wonder how we were going to do it. I was like, are you going to sit next to each other on the chair? But no, a separate room is good. Yeah, um, we've got to keep the format going here, man. <laughs> yeah, the triangular format. And I also want to say, although we met briefly, Corinne, at the uh, Brixton Academy just before the, the coronavirus here, I guess, well, I don't guess. I know this is going to be the longest time we've spent chatting. And you know, Jesse's such a dear person in my life, and so I'm really thrilled to get to know the person that he you know loves and, and cares for above all others better this has been a long time coming so i'm excited to be in this little chat with you as well amazing well where do we begin guys where do we start at the start should we go right back to how you were I brought so. into this world and go from there and just see how we go tread lightly um, and i was five months about premature I was supposed to be abortion number 19, but it was too late. <laughs> so I came out quite early and they didn't think I was going to make it. I had transparent skin. I was also kind of a purple hue. So I guess that had some symbolism there. <laughs> um, yeah, so there I was. And I was in the hospital for a bunch of months, like hooked up to all these tubes and like this little glass cage, feeding me all the stuff that I needed. I was about the size of uh, my dad's hand. Not like I knew my real dad, but if I did and he had a hand, there it was. <laughs> um, wow. So that's yeah, how that's... literally into the world. <laughs> so, you, yeah, you mentioned uh, several abortions. Um, if you could touch briefly on your um, relationship with your mother or lack thereof, really, um, how, did, how did that all? Because from what I understand, and, and again, this is your story, so I'll let you tell it. But um, you didn't really have a present. Your birth mother wasn't really present for the beginning of your life, at least. 
Yeah, I was raised by my grandparents. Uh, my real mom was a drug addict, uh, mainly crack. So crackhead, you know, everyone call me a crack baby when you get punked around in school and stuff like that. But um, yeah, so she just wasn't present until I was about age seven. Randomly, my grandparents were like, oh, your mom's gonna live in the basement of our house. And I'm like, oh, I thought you guys were you know, and then like everything came to the light and she was living in the basement and I didn't really see much of her because she was always sleeping in the daytime and awake all night. So I would go down there to do laundry or stuff when I was like 12 or so or 11 and always sleeping. And I just didn't have like a, a relationship at all with her. But the only relationship I did have was um, around the holidays, she would come around and bring a bunch of gifts. Like she loved gift giving. I feel like it was her way to feel connected because I think it's the only way that she knew how. But I mean, these were stolen goods. These weren't just gifts. <laughs> She's a bit of a kleptomaniac. <laughs> um, I think it's important to, to note too where you grew up. I think the location matters as well because it's a pretty interesting location for most people who don't know. Um, the Forgotten Borough, Staten Island, New York. <laughs> Very definitely strange, strange, strange place. But I was actually grateful out of all the places in New York City, now that I know most of New York City, uh, grateful to grow up there because there is nature there. So I, when I was a kid, I would escape a lot into the woods or abandoned places like Seaview Hospital. You know, I slept on the roof at Seaview Hospital once or twice because <laughs> I liked looking at the sky at night. Um, you know... It was a crazy, crazy, crazy upbringing in that place. And I'm so happy I got out of there ever since you came along and kidnapped me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. And I like that you mentioned nature because that's a theme that we have reoccurring on this podcast about how nature helps you to cope. Um, so, yeah, with your your mother, your lack thereof, um, your, you said your grandparents raised you. Talk about your relationship with, with your grandmother, basically seeing her as your mother for the most part of your life. Um, I have huge regrets of not getting closer with her. Um, she would isolate herself and it all made sense as I grew up and later after she died, it really started to make sense. She completely isolated herself. She wouldn't leave her bedroom ever. So the only association I really had to her was the door that was always closed, like in the dark hallway and I'd peek by and I actually wrote a poem about um, my first time looking through that door. I was five years old. Um, so I kind of just wrote about that and she saw me and I just remember her abruptly slamming the door in my face telling me, you know, don't ever look in here again. But, you know, she gave up heroin um, soon after that and she was sober. So, you know, I don't hold that against her, but it was in her past and it played a big role in how her ending happened. So um, I think Did you refer to your grandparents as like grandma and grandpa or mom, mom and dad? dad. Like, it was mom and dad. And my real mom had a big problem with that when she came along. She's like, I'm tired of you calling me by my real name and you got to respect me and call me mom. And I'm like, well, it's force of habit. I can't, can't help it. <laughs> I'm not doing it to hurt you. I'm doing it because that's how I was brought up, you know? So mm. even till, still till this day, I don't call her. <laughs> but, um, did you ever meet your dad? Have you? Do you know who he is? Yes, yes, I did. Um, I had no idea who he was um, until one day, randomly, I think it was Easter, 
he called our house, like at the landline back in the day, you know? And they were all like, oh my goodness, Karun, your dad's on the phone. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I think I was like 15 or 16. So I nervously got on the phone like, it's just a voice on the other end, you know, the voice that was never there. And I just had no idea how to react. And he was just like, I just want to wish, wish you a happy Easter and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just, I just kind of like nodded and smiled and said, okay, you know, you too. And then we just made an idea to meet up. So I met up with him and my dad, the other dad, uh, grandfather, brought me to meet him at uh, this little you know, diner type situation. And it was really emotional for me because like I was the darkest skinned one out of everyone in my family, especially in the summer when you're a kid, you're playing in the sun. So I was always, get, I get really dark in the summertime. And you know, my sister has red hair. My brother has blonde hair. We, we don't have the same fathers. You know, my sister doesn't know her father. My brother's father um, wasn't in his life either. But so they are they, were- Are they all different dads, the three? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, my brother and my sister were a little envious of me for getting to meet mine, especially my sister, because she had no idea. And there was talk about, oh, maybe her father, too. But no one ever put the effort in to find that out. So I think she was extra um, hurt by the fact that, you know, I got to meet some sort of father figure and she was still left in the dark, clueless. Um, so, yeah, when I met him, it was it was really emotional because, like, he looked like me and it, everything started to make sense. And. I ended up finding out that I'm part Jamaican and German and like all these things that I had no idea, like this kind of identity gap that, you know, I never felt like I knew who, where I was or who I, you know, where I belonged or what, where I came from. So it was really interesting and uh, comforting to find that out. But that's pretty much as far as uh, the good side of meeting my dad went. <laughs> um, he is not a good man <laughs> at all. I could see why he was missing. Um, his excuse for missing was the mob was looking for him. <laughs> uh, and apparently 9-11 happened and some sort of documents went missing and he had the capability to reveal himself again. He didn't tell me full details on what went on with that. Um, I do know he stole money from them and that was part of it. So um, yeah, I tried to get close with him. He taught me how to drive. That's another good thing that came out of it. Uh, taught me how to park really well, which is a necessity as a New Yorker. <laughs> uh, also, I cheat with my little car camera, but no one has to know that. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I actually ended up living with him at one point for like three months, and that was pretty scary. <laughs> well, is he very much still in the life of crime, or, or was he just intense, or...? He would pretend to be all perfect around me, but you could tell there was something a little off, and I didn't really realize how off it was until I started living with him. And he lived in a small studio, so it wasn't like I had my own room or anything. Like, he, he slept on the pull-out couch, and I slept on this, like, little futon behind him. Um, you know, as a kid, like, I moved out when I was five. <laughs> I couldn't stand the drama in my household and the, the drugs and the fighting and the cops there every week. As a five-year-old, I was just like, I don't want to be here. And I, you know, I had a best friend named Lori, and I remember she invited me over, and I just, she lived down the block, like four houses away. So I went over there, pretty much never came home, <laughs> um, and no one really asked where I went either, which was the crazy part, and made me feel really sad sometimes because I'm like, no one really cares about me, you know. 
Um, so yeah, I just, I guess I chose to, to leave. Yeah, I definitely chose to leave, but it did also get to the point where my grandmother started um, getting really upset with me about leaving. Cause she's like, you're not here. You, she's like, you're using me for storage, you know, stuff like that. As I got older and stuff, especially teenager, every time I'd go back there to change my clothes or shower or something quick, just to get back out, she would get really upset and be like, you know, you think you're better than all of us. You, you're not here, you know, dealing with this with me. And looking back on it, I, I wish I was there more, but I didn't well, know how to teenager i was that's hard to put that kind of a pressure on a child and i think what i want to go back to that i find really interesting and if maybe you can speak on it you know you mentioned not knowing your real mother until you were eight you mentioned not knowing your father to your teenager looking back on that what kind of an impact do you think that had on you and how did you deal with basically the life you were handed was a fabrication so as, a, as you're growing up, those very informative years up through eight, nine years old, those are very crucial, crucial years. How do you think that impacted you now that looking back with all that, not knowing your mom and dad and thinking that your grandparents pretty much were your mom and dad? I wish I can go back and hug that girl and tell her, you know, how valuable you really are and not to let that kill your spirit, you know. Um, it definitely impacted me in the sense of um, craving peace and and seeking it and you know anytime i was at Lori's house you know we had a whole basement of barbies we built a barbie world and that like that was my escape you know and me and her would play with our barbies and i would forget all about everything going on at home and, and as a kid i would wish and and hope and be like i wish i could just bring my siblings here to play with me and i have tried and it was always not a good idea they were crazy <laughs> um i was going to ask just really quick what was the relationship like with your brother and sister at first I was really close with my brother and it was kind of us two against my sister because she was a bit of a pathological liar about silly, silly things like getting us in trouble for things we didn't do, things that she did, you know, breaking something, for example. So, you know, he, me and him kind of teamed up against her, like, you know, stop lying about stuff. So he, and you know, as a kid, he was kind of more close to me than her. But as I got older and more um, distant from my whole family, they all started to, I guess, resent me for that. So, and then I feel like I lost grip of him and who, who he became because, you know, it also impacted me getting back to the impact idea. Um, it made me angry. <laughs> I was really angry. I, you know, I'm not perfect. I ended up drinking a lot as a teenager and, you know, I was doing a lot of Molly and getting addicted to that and um, just really angry. And that's where the music came in, you know, I would let my anger out in the mosh pit or, you know, <laughs> crowd surf and just go crazy. You know, there was this place in Staten Island uh, called Dock Street where I would go all the time. And, you know, they, that was kind of my little anger outlet. <laughs> go there, watch some heavy music and just freak out. I'd be the only girl in the mosh pit, like swinging around. People would be like, you know, you got to calm down. You're drinking too much. You're getting too crazy. But... I don't know. It's it's all a bit of a blackout <laughs> now. So. It seemed like there was a good chunk of your life where you weren't in one stable location. You mentioned going back to your your mom's or your grandmother's house to like get do laundry or just check in. So from Lori, you mentioned Lori, and uh, I know I can speak because I know you had other families. So you basically were kind of tr almost getting foster 
families to sort of take you in. Your friends became your family. Um, and that's still rings true today. But, um, yeah, I just, I think a lot about this, how, how not having that solid place you could call home. Um, and you mentioned anger, like trying to process that as you've gotten older and you look back on it. Um, how do you think that impacted your, your spirit? Cause I can't even imagine I came from a, a stable home and it's something that I take for granted until I speak to people who don't have that. So what was it like to just be on the move constantly? And I know if you can get into this too, like later on, you, you kind of went out on your own and we're just like you mentioned before sleeping on, on top of an abandoned mental hospital. Like tell us more about that as well. Um, well, from age five to 12, I lived with Lori. And then I, I feel like her mom was kind of getting frustrated, you know? So I, I started feeling not unwelcome, but I felt like I would, might be getting in the way. So I was like, let me get out of here for a bit. I went But back. you were there seven years. That was good of them, right? Yeah, a good amount for pretty much my whole childhood. And I feel like that saved my life. I feel like that had the biggest effect on me. And I feel like a part of me owes her my life for that. Because without that, I think I would have just came out completely rotten. <laughs> um, but having that peace and having a best friend to play with and like go to the woods with and you know, hang out at the park or go climb trees with, like, that was my sanctuary, you know. So, and our Barbie world too, of course. <laughs> but I remember when I was 12 and I put the Barbie down, she cried because she, she was a year younger than me. And I was just like, I'm done with these Barbies, you know. I'm like, I'm getting too old. <laughs> and she just, like, cried, like, no. And that was kind of the year that I lost my, uh, I guess, innocence in a sense. Um, it was more about, oh, I got a crush on a boy now something like that or how to do the makeup and impress the boys it started becoming more about that in my adolescent years and uh, I noticed me and Lori were kind of drifting apart over that you know fights over boys and stuff like that so um, I moved out at around 12 13 I went back to where I came from but by then my grandmother sold her old house that was given to her by her father um, to get away from my grandfather because he was an alcoholic and she wanted to divorce him but couldn't afford to, so the least she could do was just not be around him. So she got a new house, um, and she ended up giving me my own room because I shared a room with my sister in the other house, and she was batshit. <laughs> but so it was my first time having my own room, and I was really excited. She let me pick out the carpet and the walls, and I was like, oh, purple walls, black carpet. And I was like, I felt a sense of identity, a sense of, oh, my God, this is, like, going to be a sense of home. So it kind of got my hopes up and everything, but... That room just became dark and um, just the fights there and, and all the drama and the drugs and you know walking in on the bathroom to my aunt naked on the toilet covered in needles was you know things like that I, I would just be like oh I'm gonna go to the bathroom like it would just ruin my whole day and I just didn't know how to cope so my only coping mechanism was running away um, and then I ended up living with a boyfriend for a while secretly in his room because he, his dad was like super Jewish, then he didn't want anyone not Jewish in the house, like that type of situation. But his mom loved me and she uh, helped him keep the secret. So I always kind of just felt like a shadow of people. I just felt like I had to be hiding all the time. And then, you know, after him, I, I had a girlfriend for almost three years. And I lived again secretly with her because her mother didn't like me. She didn't like that she was gay. And, 
So I was always just a shadow, you know, I, I would be hiding behind doors or in closets or just to get around staying with people. Like my ex-girlfriend had cameras all over her house, like on the outside, she would turn them off, let me in the house. And when I wanted to leave, turn them back on. I couldn't even shower without her because um, the only bathroom with a shower was right next to her parents' room. And it's one of those bathrooms where they have access to walk through the door or you walk through the other door. So I would always get nervous and I'd shower in the middle of the night at weird hours when they're sleeping. You know, it, it got really, um, really, really hard. And it was even harder to see people not appreciate the, the family that they had. You know, I feel like everyone that almost everyone that I've stayed with would, you know, it's, it's normal, though. It's normal to not want to, you know, not like your parents or fight with them as a teenager. But as me as a teenager, I would get so upset about it and I'd be like I wish I had your situation and I would try to talk them into being a bit nicer and stuff like that um so yeah I felt like I was just a shadow for the longest time and it, it didn't end well any of the times that gives me anxiety just hearing that having to live that way is as you say in the shadows and sneaking again that the impact of that you know, I think what I'm driving at too is just, it's an extraordinary, and you're just getting started here. It's an extraordinary situation. And I don't know many people that have lived that type of life. I guess I want to double back to, you mentioned your aunt, your aunt, wherever you want to pronounce it. Did she live in this house? And then also the second question, how long did drugs stay in that house? Was that house always had drugs in it, regardless of your mother getting sober from heroin? Yeah, I mean... Less, it, it more, it became more about the lifestyle of drugs. Like my aunt became the heroin addict now. So yes, the answer is yes. She, she was always doing heroin because she had a generation to generation, just that generation. heroin. Yeah. So I'm like the black sheep of the family. I'm the only one in my family who went to college. You know, I went to college with my books and my clothes in the same backpack, you know? <laughs> Like, oh, where am I going to go next? I even got in trouble in college once for stealing toilet paper from the bathroom. <laughs> they were like, you know, they caught me and they're like, you can get in a lot of trouble for this. I was like, it's just a roll of toilet paper. You know, I don't know where I'm going next. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was really hard to graduate college with not knowing where. And I, and I was also partying like a maniac, drinking like a maniac. You know, I've even taken my math test tripping on Molly once and somehow still got a 92. Um, <laughs> how are you um, funding college if you don't mind me asking um, I had financial aid at first but they only cover so much and then it just started getting to the point where I had to pay for it so I just kind of paid for it out of pocket you know I started um, working bartending I was bartending at a strip club and that's where this whole pole dancing thing comes into play I started watching the other girls dance and I'm like oh I could do that and that's when I built my own pole in my apartment uh, through a marble table. Went to Home Depot with this um, <clears throat> pole and um, just built it myself. Um, yeah. You, you make good money tending bar and strip clubs, right? You still make good tips yeah. even though you're not dancing. Yeah, yeah. And I did try out to, to be a dancer and it didn't work out for me. I didn't like the vibe. I didn't like the male attention and all that. So I just felt like I didn't belong there. I felt like I loved the art. I just didn't love the attention that it was bringing me. So eventually I found places like uh, my, uh, this heavy metal bar called Lucky 13 Saloon. Uh, that became like my home body to dance. Uh, House of Yes. 
just places like that where the, it was more about the art and less about back rooms and shady stuff you know it's more like burlesque than a strip yeah. kind of yeah so yeah from age 12 i think to about 16 i stayed in that house with my family i tried <laughs> i couldn't i just couldn't do it and at 16 where did i go next that's when i was living with my one of my first boyfriends secretly because his dad didn't want me there I remember his dad found a purple hair in the shower and started screaming throughout the whole house in a language I didn't understand. And I'm just trying to be as quiet as possible, like, I hope he doesn't hear me. But basically, he's just like, who's in the house? I know someone's in the house. And like, It was just a mess. And Do you know what I find really, and fascinating is the wrong word, but I find it just baffling that you can exist in somebody's house unnoticed. Um, that to me is quite a startling thing to learn. Like you must've been so, so, so covert. Yeah. I just felt like it was more peaceful there than it was at home. You know? No, I, I understand that. I'm just amazed that you managed to go uh, like undiscovered. Yeah. yeah, I really did. And then, um, that boyfriend ended up becoming addicted to drugs and I was like, well, you know, I left my family over this reason. I'm not going to stay with you. And uh, I pretty much left him for a girl. And that didn't go well either because she ended up hospitalizing me, breaking three bones in my eye, beating, beating me up. Um, right after I found out things about my dad, you know, so she was uh, abusing me. And so I went to go live with my real dad because I felt like I had no other choice. And I was like, I do want to be closer to him. I do want to know more about him. So I called him and I was like, hey, I kind of need somewhere to go just for a little while, you know finish up the school semester in college. Um, so I stayed with him in that studio apartment and I was sleeping on a school night and uh, he'd be in the bathroom with the shower running and I just hear these terrible noises and with his nose, like I guess he was sniffing crack or something. It sounded like an, a dying elephant sound. I don't know, it was really bad. And I was just like, all right, ignore it. Just try to go to bed. And I'm like trying my best to go to bed and I have my my back, my face against the wall, because I remember it was up against the wall. And I remember he came out of the bathroom, and he had cameras all on the inside of his house. He was very paranoid, and he was a he was a chef, and he had knives and stuff hanging up all over the walls and stuff, too. So, um, yeah, he started shaking me in my sleep, asking me if I was nervous. And I'm just like, nervous? I was like, I'm sleeping. You're making me nervous. Are you nervous? What are we, why are we talking about nervousness here? And um, just kept telling me he's on fire, he's on fire. He's like, touch me, I'm on fire. And he's like grabbing my hand to touch his face and his neck. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Started getting really freaked out. And, and then he just stormed out. And I was like, okay. And now I'm alone in this room. And I'm like, he's freaking me out. I just got weird vibes. I was like, I think he ran out of drugs. I think he's going out to get more. So let me make my escape plan now. I ended up calling. My ex-girlfriend who beat the crap out of me and telling her my situation. I just didn't know who else to call at the time. I kind of lost all my friends from alcoholism and violence. Like I was, you know, I would go to shows and throw a glass bottle and think it's funny. Like just doing stupid stuff. Like I didn't hurt anybody, luckily. I don't know how. <laughs> but, um, but you'd kind of alienated your social circle from your like destructive behavior, right? Because you're in pain yeah, and you're expressing started... that. Yeah, they started just leaving me behind, you know, which I totally get. But so I, I called uh, name drop. Sorry, <laughs> I 
she came over and uh, picked me up and I realized I couldn't get out of the backyard. He had these tall fences and he locked them. It's like he was locking me in there. So I'm like panicking, trying to figure out how to get over this huge fence. I somehow did it, I got away. So I went to school the next morning and then I was like, all right, I gotta go back to that house. You know, all my stuff's there. I go back to the house and the, the locks on the doors are changed. I can't get in. <laughs> and there's a note on the door and it says, I love you, I gotta run. Please don't hate me. All your stuff is in the shed, goodbye. And I'm like, okay, great, here we go again. Where am I gonna go next? Um, I didn't find out what happened or where he went or why. He was running from something was all I gathered from that. So I never heard from him for uh, maybe two years, three years. I ended up, I think it was like two years. I ended up moving in with a really good friend of mine. And that was the first time I actually felt the idea of peace and like putting my head on a pillow that is mine you know she gave me my own room and my own bed and it was so peaceful and so wonderful and i feel like i owe her my life for that and you know that's where i ended up saving money to get my first apartment but i remember like i loved living with her because um we do all the things that i wished i could have done with my family like they went apple picking and pumpkin picking and had big christmas dinners without broken glass and cops called you know like in my family so um I remember it was Thanksgiving morning, I went downstairs and they had this beautiful extravagant breakfast and this huge dining room table. Her whole family's there, just eating all the good stuff. I pick up the newspaper right next to me and my dad's on the front page. And I'm just like, oh, that's interesting. And my heart just sank and it, it, it immediately just, it, it made sense, you know? And, and it brought me back to something that my sister told me because she said that she met him one night. He was driving around looking for me and I was nowhere to be found. So he's like, get in the car with me. And she's like, yeah, he took me back to my to his apartment and told me he's on fire and to touch him. And he took all of his clothes off. And I never believed her because she always made up these extravagant stories. And, you know, front page of the paper, it was like woman held at knife point. You know, he, he raped a woman my age um, that night, I guess, that I escaped. So... Yeah, that kind of just broke my spirit. And I was like, wow, that's that's the biggest waste of time meeting him and trying to bond with him. But I'm I'm glad that I know where I came from. I just, it, it hurt. It just added onto the pile of never ending hurt and like putting my hope into another family member that failed me, you know? So that's what happened with that. <laughs> that's, there's a lot to unpack there between the drugs basically just following you around. You mentioned your boyfriend you know, through your family and then getting into an abusive relationship, a physical, actual physically abusive relationship, and then returning back to that relationship. Do you think that that had, I'm sure it did, had something to do with the way you were raised or not raised, just this really no foundation, trying to figure out who you are, probably compartmentalizing all that anger through the drinking and then your friends alienating you like it that's a lot that's a lot to go through as a kid and at this point with your dad and, and moving into the other friend what age are we at right now with all of this my dad i think around 18. okay so your entire like teen years you're like not you didn't have a sense of home for the most part aside from lori correct and, and uh, my other friend were 
you know, I picked up the newspaper. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> but, so where did the dancing come into play? Because I know you, you know, you mentioned you build a pole in your apartment. Um, where did that sort of take off for you? Because it's still very much a part of your life now, which we'll get to all the, the good stuff for those listening. It's a heavy story with a, with a happy ending, I'm happy to say. But yeah, tell me about more about the, the pole, like pole dancing in general, the stigma attached to it, the way you saw it, the way it was being portrayed in the strip clubs versus uh, House of Yes and Lucky 13. I guess talk about your love for, for dancing. I saw it as an Olympic sport, you know, I'm self-taught 10 years pole dancing up until recently, I've been taking classes to learn more expert moves. Um, I'm out of practice because of COVID of course, but I used to be pretty damn good. You know, people were starting to know who I was like, ah, the crazy pole purple, the crazy pole dancer. And it, you know, that was also my escape. And you know, alcoholism was still attached to that. And there did finally come a point where I, you know, I would get out of work at four in the morning at Lucky 13. And uh, I remember one morning, uh, I blacked out. I woke up in my car, covered in puke. Uh, one of my bartender friends was sitting in the passenger seat next to me with a bacon, egg and cheese. Like, oh, you're okay. He's like, I got you this. Made sure you didn't drive. And you know, that was my wake up moment. Like, I gotta stop drinking. You know, I'm gonna kill myself here, you know? and. There comes an, a point of escapism that you have to realize, like, I'm hurting myself. And do I not love myself enough to, to stop? And do I want to end up like my family? Like, do I want to continue that? And, like, that was when I kind of put my foot down. And I stopped really drinking at work. And, I, you know, I would just take fake shots or just uh, smoke some weed or something else to keep me occupied <laughs> through the night. But... Um, well, that, that's the thing with the kind of nightlife trade, isn't it? And we have talked about this on the positive end of the spectrum is that there's great camaraderie and community that comes with bartending and, and you know, the kind of nightclub culture. But the the dark side that you're alluding to there is alcohol abuse and, you know, battering your mind, body and soul every waking hour. And it takes its toll, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. I have stomach ulcers now and I'm all, you know, and, and, and health became my new addiction. So I put aside all that addiction to escaping with alcoholism to just loving my body. And, you know, that's when my diet started to really change. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to eat animals anymore. I, you know, I want to, I have such a strong belief in natural medicine and plants and the power of nature. I just kind of found, I could tell you one thing. I don't think I would be still here without love like all the forms of love that I was given, like my, my landlord in my second apartment was like a mother to me. I would lock myself in my apartment on holidays and just like cry all day. And she would hear me through the walls <laughs> and she invites me upstairs to have dinner with her and like small things like that. Like she came to my college graduation. Uh, no one did except for my grandfather who I don't speak to anymore. That's another insane story. <laughs> but um, so yeah, I've always had like little glimpses of family that kind of got me through, like pulled me through and gave me faith and hope. And it was just love. Like, I don't think I would have still been here without love. And I always prayed for love. It's the one thing I've prayed for because I knew it would be the ultimate healer, you know? It's amazing that you um, kept that faith in love and the power of it. Because a lot of people who've been through similar things to you, I think get so eaten up by hate 
and reject love as this false concept that you know either they're not worthy of or they just don't buy into it what do you think it was that kept that um candle alight in you before you found and had these experiences of it what do you think it was that kept you believing in it that's an amazing question because you know everyone that I've ever dated has cheated on me. So, you know, I try to find it in, in partners and it, it always failed me. And, you know, and I, I'm not, I didn't always believe that I would get love, but I knew that it was the answer. I knew it would make, it would help me heal, you know, and I knew self-love had to come first. And once I realized that self-love had to come first, that's when I started loving myself. And that's when I met Jesse after, but, what really helps me with the self-love thing was going to the gym. Like I made friends with this uh, bar crazy team and they welcomed me with such open arms. And like, I was going crazy in my personal life in my head. But the second I walked through those gym doors to train with my team, it's like all that went away and they were just motivating and uplifting and, you know, exercise became my new drug too. So, um, explain what bar crazy is to those people who don't know what that is. Bar crazy is like a calisthenics team, Staten Island bar crazy. Um, it's kind of like gymnastics, but with a twist because you're like doing these crazy. It's kind of like pole dancing, but the pole's this way instead of this way, just flipping around this way. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, you know, and having that community of people who were sober and and just cared about them, themselves and their bodies. And it made me more conscious and care about myself and my body and um, just seeing how loving they could be and how welcoming it gave me hope. You know, even in my darkest time, like that was all I had going on. I became like asexual for a year. I had no interest in anyone, anyone that tried to talk to me. I would just completely dismiss them. I was just disgusted. I was disgusted in humanity. I even got a tattoo um, that said misanthropy uh, right above my lady bits. <laughs> but I ended up removing it because I felt like it was bad energy and, and I didn't want to believe that anymore. You know, I didn't want to believe that I, you know, I should get bitter and not better and like just hate humanity and so so well, you definitely did you? have those moments then you definitely uh, did almost give up on humanity i did almost give up yeah i definitely my lowest point almost give up and i was just like i'm gonna end it all you know got to that point too but a couple times but i don't know i think just the glimpses of people that helped me along the way were giving me faith you know it's like good people do exist out there it's just I'm addicted to abuse because that's all I've ever known. Mm. You know, so. Yeah, and it's hard for people who don't know what that's like, who who haven't been through it, to understand why, you know, as you say, you return to somebody who, who, who abuses you. And it doesn't have to be physical. It could be mental. There's many forms of abuse. Uh, and I actually learned a ton when I met you, which we'll get to in a little bit, about, you know, narcissism and, and different personality traits and, you know, you can't break that cycle until you start to learn to love yourself. And I love that you say that. And you found it through exercise, through community, through changing your perception. And another thing I like about your story is your family was chosen. I think a lot of people can relate to that. You don't necessarily have to be blood related to be family. And I think that I've had that in my life too, with my community, my musical community through punk and hardcore. Um, and I think it's beautiful that you have these people who to this day still maintain that friendship, that love of family. I think it's beautiful. And I commend you so much for what you've been through, but how could you not give in and, and feel hate and anger 
through oh what goodness. you went through. It's extraordinary. I definitely did. You know, the first time my ex-girlfriend laid hands on me was when I really started feeling the hate and the anger. Um, you know, it was, I was at a block party with her and uh, it was actually right by my dad's house that I just got kicked out of. And, you know, the neighborhood uh, all knew him. They're all friends. So they were at the block party and there was this one woman there came up to me and told me like, like he, you know, kind of gave me a glimpse, like uh, he's a rapist <laughs> and I didn't know if I should believe it or not. I was just like, so in denial, I was like, no, that can't be why he ran away. So I kind of had an idea of why he disappeared, but I didn't know if I could believe it or not. Cause you know, I'm talking to people I don't know, or just, I just didn't know. I, I was so young and, and naive and drunk. And so I just, I remember it driving my ex-girlfriend in her car and just like completely crying in the passenger seat and she just told me to like shut the f up and i'm tired of taking care of you i feel like i'm your mother not your girlfriend and like i just you know that sparked a little bit of a fight in me i was like what do you mean i was like i just heard the most devastating news how are you not gonna have any sympathy or empathy for that and she just basically told me to stop being a crybaby and then that's when she raised her fist while she was driving drunk of course and just pounded me in the face like six to eight times. I, I blacked out. I woke up in the passenger seat with my face like this big. And I looked over at her. I didn't even know what happened. I was just like, what? And then it dawned on me. I was like, oh my God. I was like, yeah, she attacked me. So uh, I jumped in the driver's seat, choking her out, opened the door. We're in the middle of the street. I'm on top of her getting ready to you know, hit her back. And as I went to hit her, I just, I looked her in the eyes and I stopped. I was like, I can't do this. That's, it's just not me. And uh, she cried and apologized. And we went back to her house secretly. And we had this plan, like, uh, let's go on vacation to hide your wounds. Uh, to wow. the house in Point Pleasant. And it was around Valentine's Day. Uh, so we were hiding out there until I healed because we didn't want anyone to know. So I could stay with her and continue. And it just got to the point and she just kept hitting me and hitting me even between those, you know, and it just never had time to heal. It just, you know, my whole white part of my eye was red completely. And I'm like, is it ever going to go away? Uh, <laughs> but yeah. When was the point where you finally realized that you couldn't live with that? Like how, yeah, was there like an incident where you were like, this is it, I can't do this? I mean, clearly because you, you went back and forth with her what was the moment where you're like, I can't do this anymore? I kept telling myself like, oh, physical abuse is easier than mental and emotional and spiritual. I got this. You know, I, I would kind of try to separate them. You know, I just, I, I don't know. I guess I was blindly hoping to be loved. I just wanted to be loved. I didn't know what love was. You know, I thought love meant never giving up on someone the way that mm. my family gave up on, you know, raising you know, my parents gave up on raising me. So I'm like, oh, if someone comes back even after hurting me, that's okay. You know, it means they love me, you know. So I always was very forgiving and always went back. Um, but eventually, uh, yeah, the, that whole trip to get better <laughs> got worse. And that's when it finally ended for good. Um, she hit me again and I finally hit her back. And I thought I, I, thought I killed her. I thought she was going to just... Yeah, um, it was really bad. It was really bloody. It was a mess. I, I finally let all the anger out. You know, she, she attacked me so many times and I just let it go and let it go and let it go. And 
it was just that one time I just saw red and, and that was it. And then, you know, she was like, let's go back. And we're arguing the whole drive to her house. We get there and she runs in her house, like yelling and, you know, takes her sunglasses off. She's got her little whatever. And her parents come out cursing at me and I take my sunglasses off and my whole face is like Quasimodo. And I'm like, well, look what she did to me. And, you know, she started taking all my stuff and throwing it in the street. And it was just like, a, it was a total nightmare. And, you know, just that whole experience of that, you know, that still didn't put me in perspective. Like, what is love? Like, what is love? Because I could, the abuse continued, not physically, but mentally. And, um, you know, I, I always stuck with people that would do me dirty and then I'd come back and not knowing, like, I'm, I'm betraying myself doing that, you know? Is this during the whole time that you're, um, you know, taking care of yourself in, you say, your kind of physical exercise and being mindful of what you eat and all of these things, but is it just the relationship is still the one thing that's kind of destructive and, and toxic? Is that the final piece of the puzzle that falls into place with this fella over here? <laughs> um, he didn't come till later on. Like, I was kind of just asexual when I met him, I was like, I'm disgusted. I don't want anyone. I just want friendship and that's it. So I wasn't like actively looking to hook up or anything. I was just looking for a friend and he seemed like he needed a friend. Um, <laughs> well, let's get into this then. How do you two meet? Tell me the story. What's the connection? It was right after my mom died. The one that raised me, my grandmother. I, I, I believed she was murdered by another family member for money. That's another story. Um, yeah, so I was at one of his shows and Always Came On, which is a song I dedicated to my mom after she died. So, um, and you know, like when you go to crowd surf, I don't know if anyone knows, but, and like you're getting thrown up in the air and as you're getting thrown up in the air, the song switches. So like it went from badass song to Always Is Coming On and I'm like, oh no, I'm going to look like a moron crowd surfing to this like, you know, not so crazy song. <laughs> So I'm kind of like floating towards the stage at this point. I'm like, oh my goodness, what's happening? And like, I landed on the stage and he just gave me a huge hug and like, let me sing in the mic with him for a minute. And it was just like a really emotional. You've thing. never met before in your life? Not physically, not in the flesh. That was the first flesh meeting. Uh, I didn't know any of this. This is nuts. <laughs> Till this day, I think that that was my grandmother slash mother putting me in the direction of love knowing that she wasn't around to make sure I'll be okay. Knowing like, Hey, this is the guy that's going to love you. And I, till this day, I feel like she sent me to him, like literally just lifted me up and was like, here it is, you know? So, um, that happened. And then and that, that was years ago, years ago, yeah, there were years in between, but I felt like that was the initial connect. And like, I never forgot it, you know? Uh, but the next day, all my friends are tagging me in one of his posts. He put a picture up of me that one of his photographers caught crowd surfing. And he's like, if anyone knows this well-dressed badass fan, tag her, you know, just doing a little shout out to his fans. And like all my friends are tagging me and they're like, oh my God, you're on Jesse Leach. And you know, I used to sleep in, in a car and have a liver just breathing on repeat as my lullaby at night, you know? So this was huge for me. I was like, wow, okay, cool. And um, just the here and there, we'd talk and DM his friends and it got to the point where he was just like, you know, I'm not in a good place. And he had this beautiful poem that was up and I'm a poet. And 
it just kind of hit me and I was like, I know exactly what that feels like. And I'm like, if you need a friend and we kind of met up at like three in the morning <laughs> on a night that I was going to kill myself, <laughs> actually. Did you, um, did Jesse know this? No, I didn't know the whole story, but, um, yeah, I just gone through, um, basically finding out my, my wife was, was, uh, unfaithful to me and finally, you know, cause I was going through years of abuse myself, which I didn't even really know at the time. I didn't know how abused I was and what I was going through mentally. Um, cause she was a, definitely a piece of work. Um, and so I had finally got the balls to sever the ties and move out on my own. And as I was moving and taking my stuff, I wrote this poem about just mourning the loss of this person that I was with for so long and her being a poet, she read it and she was the first person to reach out to me online and say, Hey, if you just need a friend, like I'll, I'll leave work and just go hang out with you. And it was, you know, at the time I just didn't have the wherewithal to like accept an offer like that. It's it just, I was numb, uh, but I never forgot it. I never forgot it. And our lives would continue on, but that's sort of first person that reached out it stuck with me for a couple of months and we would chat here and there prior to that because she would invite me to go to lucky 13 uh which is a metal bar and i've gotten invitations to go there so many times but i you know from friends from I'm like yeah sure do it. well you know i i was afraid to go there because i thought i would just be you know people with fans would be all over me and i had no idea how cool that bar was first of all so yeah i got the invitation from her and then life continued on and we we would chat here and there, just light, friendly stuff. And she was always really nice to me and wasn't looking for anything else where I was surrounded by a lot of other women, people who wanted, you know, other things from me because I was a quote. A slice of the pie. Yeah, single rock star, you know. <laughs> she never once approached me that way. Um, unfortunately, I did approach her the opposite way and I was definitely trying to get with her. Um, and I approached her hitting on her and basically being very sexual towards her. And she was like, I I'm not the one. You might think you know me. Straw for me. <laughs> yeah, come on, Corinne. What was your response? Tell me your side of that. I I think I kind of freaked out. I was like, I was like, I don't know who you think you're talking to, but just because I look like a dancer doesn't mean I live that lifestyle of just being, you know, fun. Like I'm not just gonna jump into bed with you. <laughs> and I just kind of put him in his place. I was like, you're talking to the wrong type of person. <laughs> Yeah, because at the time I had women throwing themselves at me and I was like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do now. I'm going to be a single rock star guy because I was lost. And she was the one that was like, hell no, buddy. And I, I was kind of like, whoa. And it intrigued me. And I'm like, well, let's just meet as friends. You know, like I, this girl is definitely making me curious now. It's not just a physical thing. There's something more. And again, that thought of she was the first person to reach out. So I started to see, oh, she, she wants to actually be a friend. Yeah, it was crazy because um, I wasn't going to meet up with you after you said that. I was like, ugh, he's just, he thinks who he is. He's a little famous rock star guy. He thinks he could do whatever he wants. It's just going to end up being the same thing I always get. I was like, you're going to waste your time going to meet this guy. Is it even worth it? And I literally fought myself in the mirror, which was like, you know, it was the same night I was having a rough time. I really was just thinking of ways to kill myself that night. Um, I was ripping my hair out. I had like these synthetic dreads and I was just violently ripping them out. They're all different lengths. Um, yeah, I literally wrestled with myself in the mirror for like two hours before meeting you and you kept asking like, where are you? You coming? You coming? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> but I finally was like, ah, just give it a shot. If you get bad vibes, just never talk to him again. 
that was my logic in that moment. And <laughs> good vibes, good vibes. So basically, it's two you know birds with broken wings, right? The exact moment when you both needed someone and you just turned to be the exact right people for each other at the exact right time. Yeah, I didn't realize how broken I was until I met her, someone who's been through what she's been through and has this deep rooted wisdom as someone who's pulled herself out, you know, and this is where I think we should start to focus on like, you've been through all this stuff, but you've come so far. And it even just from the day that we met to where we are now, you know, the, the whole term of iron sharpens iron. We've helped each other out. You know, she's able to strengthen my weaknesses and vice versa. And she helped me develop the language for what I had been through and the cycle of abuse and the way that I treat people. And, you know, I, I was a sucker for people. I would let people walk all over me and think that it was love. So we both had misconceptions of what love was. And she was the first person to really sit me down and go, this is what you've been through. This is the type of person. This is the person that she had words and labels. And I was like, whoa, this is like knowledge. Yeah, you learned a ton from what you went through and you were able to bestow that upon me. And then I started to heal because I started to realize, I don't think you can really heal until you can sit there and go, this is what I've been through. And she just brought a whole bunch of wisdom with that. Yeah, you can't heal until you take accountability and responsibility for what role you play in your own suffering. So, um, you know, knowledge is power. I started reading up on narcissism and I was like, holy crap, you know, like I've been surrounded by narcissistic people my entire life. And it all started to make sense to me and I started to feel less alone. And I'm just like, there's a there's a word for what I was going through. <laughs> um, and now, you know, I didn't become a narcissism like expert, like I see red flags now from miles away. It didn't happen until um, I dated this guy at the bar uh, that I was dancing at, Lucky. Um, and just, you know, he was the only man that I've ever been with that put his hands on me. Uh, so he kind of, that was the last like straw, you know? <laughs> I, I was like, I, I know what narcissism is now. Cause he was still torn, you know, he tormented you, Jesse. Um, at the bar he just he put on this charming uh nice guy mr perfect attitude but you know behind closed doors just a total abuser and uh he he everyone that i friends anyone that i brought there he tried to leech onto them right in front of my face and i had to just deal with it and like you know i tried to confront people about what he did no one believed me everyone started labeling me as the crazy one and you know that really put it in perspective too i'm like this is just what narcissistic people do they they play the victim while abusing you and then when you can expose them they're gonna just point the finger and call you crazy and by then everyone's gonna believe it because they already charmed everyone into believing whatever manipulation or delusion that they made of the real story so yeah, and that's what I was going through in my life, and I didn't know it for many, many years until I met her and she was breaking it down for me. I'm like, wow. So that started to help me realize and process what I had been going through. And even my behavior and mannerisms, the way I spoke to people, the way I acted around people, <clears throat> was because of dealing with somebody who was that way. And it was mind-blowing for me. Uh, meeting her and seeing she's such a survivor um, and I, I feel like I have to segue into this. 
the first time I went to go see her dance on the pole at Lucky 13, I had never really been a strip club guy or, or, or going to a place where there are women performing or um, uh, what's the word? Uh, burlesque. No, no, no. Burlesque performance. So women performing, right? Uh, scantily clad on poles, being badasses, being empowered. I'd never been around that for the most part. I avoided places like that because I, in my mind, the way I was raised, ultra religious, you avoid those areas. That's like a dark place. So even though I'm a quote unquote rock star and I've been doing music for this long, I've never gone to those places. So I already had a preconceived notion of what I was walking into. I was like, oh, I don't know. And watching her perform, and I'll never forget, she was doing crazy acrobatics that I couldn't even imagine doing because I don't have that kind of a strength. And she turned upside down and let go of the pole with her legs. Her head was about five inches to the bottom of the bar. And she caught it right on the downbeat when like the, the mosh part of the song came in. And I was like, just absolutely blown away. And she just had this vicious, don't fuck with me look on her face. There was, there was nothing about it that, that screamed stripper at all. To me, it was like, what is this? This is acrobatic. This is artistic, but it's also, I could identify with it. She was like a metal performer, but doing it on a pole to like death metal and metal music, I, it blew my mind. I'd never seen anything like that. I honestly didn't know it existed. And then I started going pretty regularly when we started talking. And that's when the friendship happened and watching her perform and understanding that this was a passion of hers and something that was, I think, a really misunderstood art form from a lot of people because there's a stigma attached to it. So I'm curious for you to go back to the pole thing, because I think that it's still a part of your life. You're still performing. You're teaching now, which is amazing, because that's what you've always wanted to do. So maybe talk a little bit more about dancing and how that was such a huge part of our relationship as well. Okay. Um, well, first off, I got nothing against strippers. I think they're great. Um, live your life. Do what you want. I don't judge. It just wasn't for me. I, I didn't. I didn't want to show pieces of my body for money. I, I wanted to show skill for money. And, um, you know, to me, the naked body is for the one who sees your naked soul. I, I just had always had that moral and that belief. So, you know, I've had enemies and haters make fun of me and call me stripper. And at first it used to really bother me. I'd be like, damn, like they just don't get it. You know, they don't see me as an artist. You know, I really wanted to just be seen strictly as an artist. But a lot of people from my past that resented me for, you know, I guess being crazy <laughs> um, would make fun of me and, you know, try to hurt my feelings. And I just kind of always ignored it and told myself, like, don't listen to them. Like, just keep doing what you do because it feels good and, and, and it, lo it looks good. And people are reacting in a positive way to it. Like, don't don't feed the negative narrative feed the positive narrative you know I've had girls coming up to me like oh my god can you show me how to do this and I'm like yeah I should do that I should open a pole studio still working on that but um well it's a great way to stay fit isn't it beyond oh, the kind of yeah. performance element the the physicality of it is as Jesse alluded to as well like it's intense it's so intense and it built my confidence you know I used to be kind of shy and you know, it, it builds my confidence, like even sexual confidence. Like I kind of just walked around like, you know, no one could mess with me. No one could touch me. <laughs> um, it, it just became 
a way of life for me. And I, and I started realizing like, Hey, this is here to stay. This isn't a temporary thing. Like I love doing this. I love, I love music. I love dancing to the beat. I love choreography. I, I just, I loved everything about it. You know, I started doing shows in strip clubs, like as a special featured dancer. Um, one place was at Sapphire in New York city. I did a duet with the, my friend who's the U.S. national pole champion. Uh, me and him did a double pole dance and it was incredible. And like, you know, I just, I started finally feeling like I found my pole community and my pole people, you know, and especially when I entered House of Yes, you know, it really started to happen there for me too. And I started feeling value and respected for my art and not just for my looks and, and for the idea of being a pole dancer, AKA stripper, you know, so, um, once I discovered there is a whole world of art out there that I can be a part of, you know, I started being more open with what I'm doing and who, cause at first I was hiding it. I was like, I don't want anyone knowing this, you know, I, I didn't post about it. I didn't want any sexual pictures of me or anything like that on the internet. But then it got to the point where I was just like, it's art. <laughs> who cares? <laughs> you know, just let it out there. And if people don't understand it, that's, that's their, um, that's their issue. That's not my issue. I'm not here to change anyone's mind or control anyone. You could think whatever you want about me. Uh, I know and I'm very confident in who I am and what I'm doing and nothing anyone says breaks past that, you know? Yeah. And it's extraordinary. You introducing me to this art form and seeing, first of all, how far it's gotten, but there are roots a hundred years ago. This was the Chinese were doing this. Like this is an actual art form that's been solidified as an art form way before it became a stripper thing. And I find it fascinating. And I've seen performances because of her. She's taken me to places and it just blows my mind. And I think that society is starting to finally catch on. You know, when you see someone like FKA Twigs at the Grammys doing pole performance, I think society's finally starting to realize that this is an art form and I fully back it. And, uh, you know, since meeting her, I've seen the whole other side of it and I, I love it. I think it's incredible. The amount of strength and skill you need is just mind blowing. Yeah, it's definitely not easy, especially when COVID happens and you don't do it for like a year and now you're getting back into it. And I feel like I'm learning it all over again. It's. I wanted to ask you that. How did the pandemic impact, you know, that community? Obviously, you know, all the clubs are shut. Everybody's out of work. So assumedly you're very much in the same boat as the, you know, live events, hospitality, all of that is exactly the same, right? It's just no work, not even the ability to, to rehearse for most people unless you've got a pole at home. So just complete shutdown, right? I did have a pole at home. I just didn't use it. I, I got depressed. I started, you know, much like Jesse, questioning who am I outside of this? What am I doing? Uh, and, you know, you, I was so afraid of the state of the world. You know, I over, I'm an overthinker, so I, I really let things get to me deeply. So the world was hurting. I was hurting with it, you know, and I couldn't focus on anything else. So I kind of just stopped dancing and just gained a little weight. <laughs> um yeah, but you did manage a few online performances. Well, I, I, I did help with that, and I thought that was pretty extraordinary in our own house. In them, though. I didn't feel like my old fierce self. Yeah. And even now, I'm still struggling to get back to that, find that identity. Um, it's, you know, once you, you don't use it, you lose it. It's true. <laughs> I mean, it is like riding a bike. I'll never lose it that much, but you, I got to get better at it again. Well, you, that, mentioned, you mentioned taking lessons, training again, and also teaching. So talk yeah, about that. Definitely uh, helped me get my spark back for it. You know, I'm one of those people where 
it's really hard for me to do things alone. I need a community of people uplifting me. You know, that's why I had the bar crazy team. That's why, I, you know, as a dancer, I didn't realize it, but I had a crowd and, and like I had people cheering me on. So it was my motivation. And like being home alone, which is you and your pole, I'm just like, there's no people here to cheer me on, you know, and make me feel strong and make me feel like I could do this. So it's really hard for me to be my own cheerleader. So I just kind of neglected the pole for a while over that. But now that I'm teaching, like this, that's my motivation. I want to show people how to do it. And now I'm getting better at it again. And I now make it a part of my daily, weekly life to go train with a professional expert trainer. Um, so I'm upping my skills now because I've been self-taught for 10 years. So um, finally I have someone teaching me and it's really awesome. It's a whole different ball game. And, you know, having her there just teaching me motivates me too. So I just kind of need that motivator, you know, and I'm not going to lie, a bunch of dollar bills flying through the air. It's <laughs> <laughs> definitely motivation. <laughs> when it's raining, it's pouring. Let's talk about the natural medicines and remedies. And you kind of, you know, suggested that that's an area of your life that's, you know, always kind of been there. But um, am I right in thinking that's something you're trying to work towards making it a kind of a source of income as well, beyond just a passion project? Yeah, um, I've been so obsessed with healing after I got a taste of what it's like. I'm like, oh, my God, I love this. I love, you know, healing mentally, healing emotionally and having peace and having love and it kind of just made me dig a little deeper. Like, well, what really happened was I just started having a bunch of health issues and, and no doctor could figure out what was wrong with me. Um, they kept telling me it's stress, it's depress, it's anxiety. And I'm just like, well, my life is the most peaceful it's ever been. I don't know if that's it, you know? <laughs> so, um, they just tried to give me drugs and that was it. And, and I, I'm, I hate drugs and I, you know, you guys know why now, but, um, it just got to the point where I started doing my own research. I'm like, there's got to be something wrong with me and I got to figure it out. And he'd yell at me, be like, you're going down the Google hole. You think you're going to die? And, you know, that, that whole situation. So um, I started researching Dr. Sabi and uh, how he cured, he put an ad in the newspaper to cure um, herpes, AIDS, stuff like that, cancer. And, you know, they, of course they got wind of that and they wouldn't allow that in the paper and they had his eye, their eyes on him now. But, um, I started researching, you know, how did he do this? You know, he had a, a this little village in Honduras, uh, the Usa, Usa village, I think it was pronounced, um, where he'd take people in and heal them. And that village is still there today and still going. Um, so I got really curious about that. I started looking up prices. I'm like, Oh, maybe I should go there, you know, just get a little healing retreat. But I started looking at like, how did he heal these people? And it was through Irish gold sea moss, which is something I incorporated in my daily life. I started taking it every day and I started feeling a difference. It's got 92 out of 102 minerals that the body needs. Um, and when you put your body in a good place, it, it does a better job. The body does what it's supposed to do. You just have to give it the right uh, circumstances. You know, you're not going to get where you want to be drinking and partying every day, eating cheeseburgers. <laughs> You know, diet, lifestyle, exercise, getting all your minerals, especially as a vegan, is all, you know, plays a huge role in your healing. So, and also fasting. He, he uh, would, you know, guide people on how to fast properly. And, you know, when the body has nothing to eat, it starts eating the problem. So, yeah. 
I swear by fasting. I try and do like a few every year and I always feel great after doing it mentally as well as physically. Oh, definitely. It's like a whole spiritual transformation. And uh, I remember uh, Lisa Left Eye spoke out uh, on how Dr. Sabi healed her. And that's when he started getting uh, the attention of more and more people. And, uh, you know, of course, he's dead now. He died in jail of starvation, even though he had so much experience fasting. He was convinced that um, the people in the in in the jail cell were poisoning his food, so he refused to eat. Um, that was one of the last things that he said over the phone with his wife at the time. He had a bunch of wives, but um, yeah. So you know, he got locked up for having, I think, over the certain amount of money you're supposed to have when you travel, and he had to like prove where he got it from, and he got it from healing all these people in the village. And every time his wife called to try to let them know, like, hey, I, I could account for this money, like, release him. They, you know, they'd ignore her calls. They would, you know, dodge it or go around it. They wanted to keep him in that cell as long as possible. You know, you don't want Big Pharma to lose their job. So, you know, they found their way of, there's a whole conspiracy about it. But um, documentaries. Or, or truth, if you will. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know. And it's interesting. A lot of these herbal supplements and stuff like that are not FDA approved. Like the FDA has no interest in doing studies with them or approving them. Nothing. Like they kind of just leave us in the dark. And there's a reason for that. I started thinking, I'm like, you know, why, 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 you know, plants, something as simple as just plants and herbs. You're not going to test and see like, oh, this is, this can help people. Or they don't want to put their little name on it saying like, yeah, it's true. It does help people. So instead, they kind of leave us all in the dark, like, oh, not FDA approved. And I have to put that on every bottle, you know, that I sell. So, but I, you know, I listen to my body and it feels good. And I, I you know, according to the research that I've found, it, it's done great, amazing things. And I got Jesse on it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll be a quick testimony here. Like basically when I met her, I was not caring for myself. I was borderline heart attack. I, changed my diet. I got off dairy, which I was allergic to. I had no idea. I would constantly get rashes and canker sores and just bloated and tons of digestive problems. You can go online and watch YouTube videos to see pictures. I was bloated and like not okay. I posted a clip the other day of um, oh, yeah. you, you and Melissa and you yeah. commented on it and said, yeah, this is my fat years or something like that. <laughs> yeah, she, she was teaching me and I'm sitting in the chair doing my vocal thing and I could just see the rotund extended belly because I was super unhealthy. So yeah, just listening to her advice and then getting on CMOS and, and she mentioned her bottle. She has her own business, which I'll, I'll plug for you, Purple's Herbals. And I've been taking- What a great name. Yeah, it works. I'm it's in the, my dad's name, my childhood name. So it just kind of stuck. I'm obsessed with purple. And but, yeah. but sound-wise, they sit together so well, Purple's yeah. Herbals. It's amazing. They always say, uh, nothing rhymes with purple. And I'm like, ah, well, I'm a poet and I know my slant rhymes. So <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jesse. but yeah, it changed. It changed my whole life. Um, my digestive issues went away. My blood pressure, cholesterol is better than it's ever been. I'm I'm at a better weight than I was when I was 18. I perform better singing because of my mucus control. Um, just everything across the board works better. I feel better. My mental clarity is better. It is actually a miracle, and I think that people suppress that because it does take away from big pharma and all the pills that they want you to take, and all the you know the food industry is just propaganda. It's really terrible, especially here in the U.S. How bad it is! 
but yeah, just listening to her advice and getting on CMOS has totally changed my life. It's absolutely incredible. And I highly recommend anyone giving it a shot. You know, it's just, it's a miracle uh, plant. Yes, moss from the ocean. <laughs> it's also considered like a prebiotic probiotic. It, it's a mucus eliminator. And, you know, the cause of every disease starts with mucus, like an old buildup of mucus in a certain area. You got buildup in your lungs, you know, you have lung problems. You got mucus buildup in your brain. You got brain problems. It all starts at mucus. So if you could eliminate the mucus, you're less likely to get sick. So, you know, and I notice it. Like when we go sometimes, you know, on our little adventures, road trips and stuff, you know, we're having so much fun. We forget our daily routines like, oh, the sea moss and this and that and that. You know, I feel so off, so off. And my energy is so low. It's because my body's not getting all those electrifying minerals. So... I hate being off of it. <laughs> that for me has been the hardest thing of the last couple of months as I got into, and we spoke about this a bit on the show already, but I got into such a good routine during the quiet time with diet, with exercise, just with like my state of mind. And then since going back to DJing, which has been amazing fun um, and it's great to be earning again, you know, all the good <laughs> changes that have come about have kind of, you know, they've dissipated a little bit here and there and it's trying to keep now that's the struggle for all of us is trying to maintain that balance of like the lessons that we've learned during this downtime and trying to continue to eat well and live well with going out and socializing and seeing people and traveling and touring um and all this stuff it's really hard to keep that that health and that kind of yeah good good practice up to up to speed you need to be on that jesse when you're out there with the yeah yeah i well i just came by i I, I knew she was going to shake the fist. <laughs> um, I just came back from three shows and they were the first three shows that I can remember three in a row performing completely sober. And not only did I sound better, but I felt better and I was more present. So I really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, I have stuck with it. I mean, I had a shot when we first got together and, but I maintained pretty healthy the past three shows and that was eye opening for me. And I was also proud of myself. I was kind of patting myself on the back. Like I, I can do this. But um, it's all because what I've learned and the discipline and honestly, just the way you feel when you start getting healthy and healing. And I think that's the theme here, really, for me, since meeting her, I've healed on so many different levels, um, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, mentally. You know, the, the relationship that I have with her is, is a relationship I've never known before. And I it's changed everything for me. So I just, I champion her online when I can, but I thought it was so appropriate for her to come in after hearing someone like Melissa Cross talk about where she came from and those struggles that, you know, and, and you didn't even really get into the real guts. I mean, you kind of gave us an overview, but I think it's important for people to hear your story because I know people can relate to some parts or just look at their own life and go, wow, like if she's gone through this and she can do this, I can do it too. And I know you have problems accepting that you're successful, but in my eyes, you're such an inspiration because of what you've been through. And here you are doing the two things you said you were going to do. I remember meeting you and you're like, I just want to teach Paul. I want to get healthy. I want to do this. You're teaching Paul and you have your own supplement company. Boom. And you did that in a sh fairly short amount of time considering where you came global from. Global pandemic. Yeah, during a global pandemic, dude. Come on. And, and where you... <laughs> yeah, but where you came from and then just from the time that you and I met 
the way that I've seen you transform and blossom really as a person has been absolutely astounding. And I see it on a regular basis because I know it's not easy for you and it's not easy for me. We both have our own mental issues, but you inspire me on a daily basis with your, the way you see the world, your sense of humor about it at times, and then your honesty and just being angry and letting things out and uh, just being brutally honest. It's refreshing for me. And it's been a challenge for both of us weaving through our relationship, but motivation and inspiration every single day from you. So I commend you for that. Thank you. I feel the same way about you. You already know that. <laughs> it's just, you know, there, if you get to the point where you get kind of bored of, of alcoholism and abusing yourself, and I, I really was just getting bored with it. I was like, this isn't fun anymore. It's just getting to the point of drink, 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 blackout, or, or do something stupid, or, you know, it just got to the point of, I'm getting bored of this, this lifestyle. And, and now the new high is just not getting high. <laughs> high on life, you know? And Do you know what you said earlier, which really struck a chord with me as well, is about wanting to be better, not bitter. And I think that's something that everybody could apply to their life. If they've been wronged by someone or they feel like a situation has played them wrong or they're just, you know, perhaps a little bit jaded with whatever's going on. I think that's such a great mantra to kind of take into day to day life is wanting to be better, not bitter about the world. That mm. struck right a chord. And I'm going to take that wherever I go. That's a cool <laughs> little bit of advice right there. Good way to live your life. It's very poetic and poignant. Um, yeah, and I will also throw another compliment on you. She's a brilliant writer, and she actually helped inspire me to write some of the lyrics um, from some of my music. My band, The Weapon, um, we have a song called, um, oh, what is it called? <laughs> Unstoppable. And she helped me with that. And also, she was the inspiration behind a Times of Grace song called Rescue. Um, and so to me, it just, I think her and I are an example of what love, real love can do to somebody who's broken and down in the dumps. And that's something that I'm, I'm a really champion with her. She's really helped me see a different side of myself. And I'd like to think I've done the same for her. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> what a cool couple you guys are. I love it. You know, reminding us all that true love is out there. Um, this has been a joy getting to know you in a real way. Um, and I, yeah, I'm coming out there soon, man. I'm coming out for a real life fire chat. You are more than welcome to music and food. And I know when it happens, it's going to be so good. Um, but yeah, I don't know whether there's anything you guys want to add on the end here, but I feel like that is a nice place to, to wrap things up. And thank you so much, Corinne, for, you know, everything for helping out my dear friend in such a profound way. I guess for me, just plug plug your uh, class and your your uh, your vitamins. I think it's a good place. Now's the time to do it. Plug plug away. <laughs> Be shameless like me. I'm 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 a shameless hustler. I've got a book out. You can get it. It's called Life in the Stocks. <laughs> yep. Yeah, little plug, and then we'll end this thing. Uh, follow Purple's Herbals on Instagram and Purple's Pole Fit on Instagram. I teach in Poughkeepsie at Be Fit Passion Studios. You can find it on my Instagram, Porphyrophilia. Um, and yeah, I pretty much, I just, I just kind of believe in finding who you are underneath all the chaos that you've dealt with. No matter how much chaos you deal with, always dig underneath to, to find who you are aside from that. You don't have to be, you don't have to own what happened to you, but you are responsible 
for how you deal with it and how you react to it. Mm. So, you know, being an alcoholic or, or being addicted to abusive things, whatever it may be, find the power within yourself to strip that all away and question like, who am I without that? You know, who am I underneath all that drinking? Who am I um, underneath my addiction to abuse or addiction to anything? So that's kind of what happened. I just got curious. I got curious to find the real me. And that's when the real me started to bloom. <laughs> well, you're a real survivor. And uh, thank you for sharing your story. You know, I feel like someday you got to write a book. You really do. Well, um, you read the first chapter and you... Uh... Yeah, I read the first chapter and sobbed. Because, you know, she... <laughs> yeah, she, she definitely... Um, yeah, I mean, you guys know from listening, she's been through hell and back. And again, it gets deeper. But, um, you know, it's a happy ending. And here we are. And um, um, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Especially last minute, because we kind of, Matt and I kind of popped this tiny last minute. But uh, we've been wanting to have you come on. We've talked about it since the beginning. So all hails to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Love you both. This was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, much love, brother. Thank you. Now you go and make out. I'll see you later. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.